Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. With me is my co-host, Leah Kaufman, who will tell you a little bit about what you'll hear in podcast number 10. In this podcast, we'll meet Dr. Patrick Crago, Principal Investigator at the Cleveland Functional Electrical Stimulation Center. Dr. Crago is working on implantable electrical devices that restore arm and hand function to people who have been paralyzed by spinal cord injuries. Let's meet Dr. Crago now. We're joined today by Dr. Patrick Crago, who is the Allen H. and Constance T. Ford Professor and Chairman of Biomedical Engineering at Case Western Reserve University. Case is well known in studies of electrical stimulation of muscle, and Dr. Crago is a principal investigator at the Cleveland Functional Electrical Stimulation Center. Dr. Crago, tell me about the problem that you're working to solve. A, a large group of investigators uh, at the FES Center that are uh, addressing the problem of restoring motor function in uh, people who have had uh, spinal cord injuries. Uh, we address, um, uh, res- we, we try to provide uh, replacement function for muscles that have been paralyzed as a result of these uh, injuries. So you, uh, I'm trying to imagine what this might actually look like. Well, let's back up. Um, is there a particular injury that you're working on? Or- uh, yes, my own, my own research uh, focuses on restoring uh, arm and hand function in people with uh, s- uh, cervical level spinal cord injuries, uh, which are typically referred to as tetraplegics or quadriplegics. Okay, so the cervical spine is the neck area. Right, right, it's the neck area. Cervical spine connects your uh, trunk to your head. And if I recall correctly, the higher up the injury in the cervical spine, the more widespread the paralysis. Right. The the nerves that control the muscles in your arms come off at various levels of the cervical vertebra and uh, go down your arm and make connections to the individual muscles. So if you, uh, uh, for instance, if you're classified as a C5 uh, spinal cord injury, uh, you would be able to um, uh, flex your elbow. You would be able to uh, move your shoulders, uh, and but you would but you would not be able to extend your elbow against gravity or to push something away from you. You would not be able to use your hand to grasp and release objects. You would not be able to control your wrist movements. Okay. okay? So and if you are a, a, a uh, C6 level spinal cord injury, which is one level lower, you would be able to extend your wrist, but you still wouldn't have uh, control over uh, hand grasp and release. And okay. you still wouldn't have triceps or arm extension function. So in terms of daily functioning, this is a pretty, unfortunately, a pretty high level of disability. requires a lot of assistance, perhaps, to get through the day. And what sort of technology are you working on to try and improve things? Okay, what we're trying to do is to uh, restore some uh, basic level functions like hand grasp and release uh, and the ability to reach overhead or to push objects away from you. Uh, and we do that by uh, implanting electrical stimulators that activate the paralyzed muscles uh, in a coordinated way to provide those functions. 
So when you say coordinated, I have a feeling the devil is in those details. It's not enough then just to, to give us electrical stimulation to a muscle. That doesn't just solve the problem. What do you have to do to, what sort of patterns do you have to establish in that stimulation to make the muscle work? Well, there's a, a tremendous number of muscles that are involved in any particular uh, arm movement or, or hand function. And the, the technology at this point only allows you to, at, uh, to uh, stimulate electrically uh, a small set of those. So you have to pick muscles that are uh, in, involved in a key way in particular movements, and you have to adjust the level of stimulation to each of those muscles on a, you know, on a uh, continuous basis so that you can control the force that each muscle produces and that the, the net forces that are produced by all of the muscles that you are stimulating uh, control your movements uh, in a functional way. So if you, for instance, if you're talking about hand grasp and you're trying to pick up a, uh, a, a beverage can, for instance, you would need to activate the muscles that open your hand uh, that would extend your fingers and your thumb so that you could get your hand around the object and then to um, move your thumb into position on one side of the, of the can and move your fingers in position on the other side of the can and close them in a way that the can stays in your grasp. Okay, it's not, it's not sufficient to uh, close your fingers first and then close your thumb because you won't really uh, be, you won't be able to grasp the object that way. So that's what I mean by coordination. You have to activate muscles in the right pattern, both in terms of strength and timing, to, to get a movement that's functional. The hand grasp project is one of the earlier ones at your center, is that right? Yes, that was a system that was developed by uh, Dr. Hunter Peckham, who's the director of the FES Center in Cleveland. Uh, this is the first uh, um, motor control neuroprosthesis that was FDA approved, mm -hmm. uh, and it's first implantable system. And uh, this was is a device that has been uh, surgically implanted and and has been beneficial to about two hundred people around the world. How deep do those implants go? Okay, uh, the to get activation of individual muscles uh, so that you can do things in a coordinated way, uh, you have to put electrodes uh, either on the surface or inside those individual muscles. And, uh, and those electrodes are either small disks or they're coiled wires that uh, go, get inserted into the muscle. Uh, there's, there are wires that are called leads that run from the electrodes up the arm uh, into the uh, chest area where there's an implantable electronic device that's much like a pacemaker, only in this case it's used to stimulate muscles instead of to stimulate the heart. And that, um, that implantable uh, stimulator is powered externally and controlled externally by radio frequency waves uh, from an antenna that is placed over the skin 
directly over the implanted stimulator. And what is that device communicating with? Okay, there's, a, there's an external device, uh, a box of electronics that uh, provides all the uh, radio frequency signals, the power signals, the command signals, the control signals that do the actual uh, coordination. And this box also is connected to a, a sensor that, uh, that, that is used to measure what the patient wants to do. Okay, so if the, if the person wants to uh, open their hand, they have to have a way to tell the box that they want to open their hand or close their hand or vice, you know, to just to tell the box what function wants, that the person wants to control. And um, in the earliest systems, this was done with what is equivalent to a joystick that was mounted on the chest, and the arm of the joystick was connected to the shoulder. And so the, the, the people that have these level of injuries, uh, the uh, fifth or sixth cervical level injuries, uh, some, have some shoulder movement. And that shoulder movement is used to directly uh, control hand grasp. Uh, so that typically if the shoulder is down low or depressed, then the stimulation to the muscles would be uh, programmed to open the hand. And then as they progressively raise their shoulder, it would, in a coordinated way, activate the muscles to close the hand in a functional grasp. So in the shoulder movement, it gets directly translated into hand movement. Okay. okay. Now these are very small shoulder movements, and unless you were, um, if unless you were conscious of what this person was doing, you wouldn't even notice them. Uh, and there's also other uh, command signals, what we call command signals, that the that the per, that the user can generate to lock the stimulation on, to hold grasp in a uh, so that they can move their shoulder around uh, and use their hand in a closed mode. So, for instance, they could. Uh, pick up a pen uh, and lock the the stimulation on so that the pen would stay in their hand while they use the pen to write, okay? And or a comb or anything like that. Things that make daily living easier. Things that are right that I'm taking for granted as I sit right. here jotting notes. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and 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 there are you know there are devices. Uh, external devices that people with spinal cord injuries can use because it's adaptive equipment so they could have a, a splint or something with a pen holder in it that would enable them to write but uh, this requires really somebody to put the splint on the hand it requires somebody to put the hand the, the pen into the splint and then the person can use it but with these devices even though we're providing rudimentary function people can carry out these activities independently. So it provides a degree of independence that otherwise uh, they would not have, that they would have to have an attendant to help them do uh, most of their activities, what, what are called activities of daily living. And you're working on the next generation of these devices, am I correct? Yes, this, this uh, original system was first implanted uh, in 1986, and it got FDA approval, I think, in 1997. And um, the, um, the work that, uh, that's been going on since then is, is aimed at 
extending this idea of electrical stimulation of paralyzed muscles to add other functions. Okay, so for instance, in my own particular work, what uh, I'm looking at is is restoring functions that are further up the arm. Okay, so uh, uh, doing work at the at at controlling the wrist, and particularly doing work at controlling the elbow. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the elbow, uh, what people with fifth or sixth level cervical spinal cord injuries, they can bend their elbow or flex their elbow to bring their hand to their face, okay? But they do not have control over triceps, which is the which is called an antagonist to biceps. Biceps is an elbow flexor, triceps is an elbow extensor. They don't have they have paralyzed triceps, so they cannot extend their arm. They can't push an object away from them. They can't reach overhead to grasp an object because gravity would basically cause their arm to fall down. Okay, so the with the hand grasp system, uh, you know, when you're normally sitting at a desk or at a table, your arm, your upper arm is really pointed down, and gravity serves the function of the triceps. Okay, it serves as what we call an elbow extensor. It it will lower the arm even without any active triceps function. Okay, and so. Uh, um, you can have one of the hand grasp systems and use it for eating or for writing because you use gravity to to perform that function. But if you want to push something away, you can't you don't have any active triceps function. You can't do that. You can't reach overhead because gravity will let will cause your arm to fall down. And so uh, what we have been looking at is ways to uh, incorporate uh, basically add one more channel to uh, this electrical stimulation system, which for hand grasp requires about seven or eight channels of stimulation. So we add, we take one of those channels. So I'm clear, you would be combining these functions, hand grasp plus the new function of reach. Um, this, this provides a suite of functionality. Correct. Um, we, we, would be, we would be adding triceps control or elbow control to the hand grasp system so that you would be able not just to you know, reach your arm up, but also to use that hand grasp to hang up a coat, uh, take a book off a shelf, you know, work in the kitchen to take cooking uh, utensils or food off of a shelf, uh, provide an integrated function of hand grasp and uh, elbow control. And without another joystick, what's the signal to reach overhead or to, to push away, or how does that process become initiated? Okay, we, we uh, of course, like all good engineers, we started off with a really complicated solution and then found solutions that were uh, very simple. And so I'll, I'll start with the simple solution and, and uh, tell you, you know, why it works so well and also um, you know, give you some idea about what doesn't work so well with that and where, where we're going to, um, to improve control. Okay. Uh, the simplest solution is to uh, simply stimulate triceps, you know, activate it at, uh, at a constant level of stimulation whenever the hand grasp system is turned on. 
Okay, so if you're just sitting there without having it on, your triceps would be relaxed. But if you wanted to use your hand and you turned the, trice, you turned the, the hand grasp system on, you would, uh, it would automatically turn on the stimulation to triceps. So if you, you know, if you think about this, what would happen is if everything else was relaxed, your arm would just uh, push out. Okay, so it would, you know, it, would, it would push out and, or what we call extend. Okay, so, but since you have voluntary control over biceps and other elbow flexors, you can simply pull against that stimulated triceps. Mm-hmm. The stimulated the triceps generates a force. It doesn't control the position. It's the balance between the forces in biceps in the forces and triceps that determines what your joint position is, what your joint angle is. So you can voluntarily just pull against the stimulated triceps, and there, in by doing that, you can um, you know, move your arm through its complete range of motion. Uh, you can use this functionally, and uh, the the proof has really been that uh, about forty people with these implanted systems now have an electrode activating triceps using this control scheme. Okay, so it's been not only, it, it not only works well in the lab, but uh, the, the, the users of these systems have found it to be very valuable and have uh, uh, elected to uh, include tricep stimulation in their neuroprosthesis. So the tricep is on all the time, and in order to bend one's arm, put it in my lap, for instance, I would activate my bicep muscle to oppose the always-on tricep. But does that tricep muscle get tired, or does the bicep muscle get tired opposing it all the time? Or Well, that's, that's one of the, the main drawbacks that we, um, you know, that are you know, really apparent, uh, is that you're, you're activating triceps, uh, and it's on all the time, so it'll fatigue. And since biceps is always pulling against it, it will fatigue too. Uh, now, uh, it hasn't been a, a major issue with people using these the, these systems so far. But as we want to provide more sophisticated function with these neuroprostheses, we want to come up with a system where triceps is activated in a more natural way. Uh, you know, this uh, arm control with this constant stimulation is pretty natural. But the, uh, the way muscles are being actually used, the activation system is not natural and, and uh, has these potential drawbacks. The other, the other drawback of having triceps being stimulated constantly is that it's always pulling against the biceps and therefore the amount of force in your hand that you can, you know, at your hand that you can generate is going to be lower without uh, the, or it's going to be lower with the tricep stimulated than without it. You know, so the, the weight of an object that you could pick up is going to be lower with tricep stimulation on than with tricep stimulation off. So ideally you want a way where when you want, when you want to have full elbow flexion, uh, you could turn off the triceps, and that really gets into the next evolutionary step in the control. Uh, uh, we, we've devised a way where we can um, control the tricep stimulation in a way uh, that 
takes into account how much activity there is in the biceps, which is opposing the triceps. So this is even yet the next generation. And tell, tell me more about how you assess what somebody needs in order to gain functionality. How, how does this whole next generation system work? Where we don't have the tricep on all the time, but it's variable. Well, the way this system works is that when you, when anybody activates their muscles, uh, the, it, the muscle generates an electrical signal really as a byproduct of how the nervous system controls it. Or, uh, it generates an electrical signal that you can measure, and in, in general, that signal is proportional to how strong the contraction is. So if we measure the signal in your biceps when you pick something up, that activity level is going to increase the harder you exert uh, your biceps activity. We can measure that electrically, and we can use that electrical signal then to control the tricep stimulation. I see. So you can balance. There's an initiation that goes on. If I begin to pick something up, that muscle begins to fire. You, you, it's sort of a feedback loop, isn't it? You can pick that up on instrumentation and then accordingly tell the tricep muscle how to respond to that Right. Effort. So let's, okay. if, let's say if we take the constant stimulation case that we had to begin with, now if we use the electrical signal from the biceps to, in essence, turn down the stimulation to the triceps, we get a reciprocal activation pattern. When biceps comes on, it, turn, it, it decreases the amount of strength in the tricep stimulation. And so you get, you, if you set it up in the right way, you can, you can have uh, you know, biceps activation completely turn off tricep stimulation once it gets up to a certain level. And you can actually grade this. So you can go from a, a situation where with the biceps relaxed, you would get full tricep strength with the biceps active, you know, fully active, you would get full bicep strength and no triceps activation. So you can, you can generate uh, this, this graded activation of triceps that's very well integrated with what you're voluntarily doing with your biceps. It's not something you have to think about because whenever you uh, bend your arm, uh, the biceps is going to automatically generate this electrical signal and automatically turn down the uh, stimulation to the triceps. And if you want to extend your arm, you don't have to think about uh, consciously uh, you know, uh, decreasing your biceps activation because that's what you do naturally. Hmm. When you go to extend your arm, your biceps activity is going to go down and triceps is going to go up. So it, it, it integrates very well with um, the, natural, the natural way that you control your arm. I'm curious if that's less true if somebody has been living with an injury for a longer period of time. Or are the firings still happening in a natural, the neuron firing still, the signal still going from the brain to the spinal cord to the muscle in a natural way without degradation, even though they haven't performed that function for a long time due to injury? Well, that's a good question, and I don't know that we can say for certain that they still do it in the same way. 
but they they do activate their biceps in uh, you know in in daily activities because they still have this motor function. Okay. So it it although the activation might not be natural uh, or may not be exactly the same as it would be in an, in a non-paralyzed person, uh, it's it's certainly being activated in a in an appropriate way. In an adequate way. In, a, in an appropriate okay. way, right. Now, have you used the newest system with patients yet? Uh, we've done a fair amount of tests in the laboratory, but uh, one of the things that has happened here is that basically our, our ability to control triceps is a little bit ahead of the technology that's available for the implants. Hmm. So we have not uh, implemented this system in uh, a person in a form that they can take it out of the laboratory. So we've done a lot of laboratory tests to show that it works, uh, but the next step of really making a, an implantable system that's capable of doing this is still in process. This is, a, this is a, an activity that's ongoing by other people in the FES Center to create this new technology platform that will allow this type of, um, of control. Uh, are the folks using it in the lab? How how do they feel about using it? Are they happy with it? Yeah, they're happy with it. Uh, you know, we don't have uh, uh, in when you're doing uh, tests like this in the lab, they're a fairly limited duration because of the ability of people to come into the lab and participate in experiments. Uh, you know, is is limited, so uh, they're. Re- fairly short-term mm-hmm. tests, so you don't have the ability to say, you know, well, use this for a month and then tell me, or, you know, then tell me how you feel about it, or to, uh, to um, uh, you know, to look at what some of the longer-term implications might be, like fatigue, for instance, okay? Uh, that's something it's set up to try and solve, uh, but that you have to have fairly long term tests in order to carry out that kind of an evaluation. We do evaluations with their ability to, you know, we measure their ability to take objects off of shelves, for instance, and to put them, uh, you know, to use them. And one thing that we found with the, with these, with these control systems, with both kinds of control systems I've talked about, is that um, they can do these tasks at a much higher frequency of success than without the tricep stimulation, and they can also perform these tasks more quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really improving their ability to function uh, independently. If we had listeners who were close enough to the FES to participate in clinical trials, would there be opportunities for them to do that? Are you looking for subjects? Uh, yes. We have a number of... of um, of uh, studies that are going on, uh, and the best way to do that would be to contact the FES Center. Okay. And I didn't bring the URL. That's okay. We'll find it. <laughs> we'll find it, and okay. we'll link to the URL from our homepage, where these podcasts are hosted. Oh, I see. Um, so that's no problem. Are, do you hope to add even more functionalities over time to this system? Yes, we do, uh, and uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, we're uh, working on similar kind of control problems 
at the wrist and in the forearm for rotating your forearm, you know, um, twisting your arm, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, the, we can use similar kind of control principles at both of these. Uh, some of the technologies that are being uh, developed involve uh, artificial neural networks that can learn from uh, uh, you, you give it the real data from a real person and it can learn the, the right control strategies uh, based on this data. Uh, the, one of, the, advan one of the, the things that you run into with spinal, working with spinal cord injured individuals is that uh, there's a tremendous variability from one person to the next. Okay, the, the lesions are not the same. In the the injuries cord. are not the yeah. same. The injuries in the spinal cord are not the same. Uh, in spite of the fact that everybody looks sort of the same, they have very different uh, uh, mechanical characteristics, for instance. Uh, and um, so there's a need to uh, be able to take any of these things that we develop and sort of custom fit it to that person. And so technologies like artificial neural networks really allow a lot of flexibility in that customization. The neural network is, uh, is able to be trained in patterns, it, it sounds to me. Am I getting that right? Where, That's right. Okay, so it, it recognizes, I don't want to say behaviors because it gives a lot of well, weight to machines. But it <laughs> learns. It learns to be able to duplicate behavior. Okay. okay, so if you give it the right behavior, uh, it can learn, you, you train it, you can learn to duplicate that kind of performance. So that's it's what a, allows you to customize right. a system right. for we a particular make, person. We make measurements on an individual person, mm -hmm. and we can use that data with the neural network to develop really very quickly, you know, in a, in a matter of minutes. You can develop a control system that's suitable for that person. Now, how portable, though, is, especially as you add neural networks and more functionality, how portable is this equipment? Well, the, the, the current devices um, are, a, you know, a couple inches by a couple inches by six inches. I don't know, I don't remember exactly what the dimensions are, but they're roughly that size. Uh, and this, these, these uh, devices contain all the batteries, all the electronics, and I think one of the one of the I don't expect that the size of these devices is actually going to increase. I expect the size of these devices is going to decrease, uh, not because we've, we're adding more sophisticated control systems, but because the advances in microelectronics are such that you can get tremendously greater function with a lot less size than you could five or ten years ago. And that the size of electronics is decreasing continuously. So I don't expect that the size of these devices will really grow. And speaking of years, uh, where do you see this field in, say, another five years or another decade? I think that, the, that this field of, uh, of uh, the functional electrical stimulation is, is really at uh, its starting point. I, uh, there's going to be a tremendous growth uh, and for a fairly simple reason, uh, the basically almost everything we do in our bodies is controlled by the nervous system. And you can use electrical stimulation to activate these nerves and to 
and in the case of, of, of paralysis, for instance, you're substituting a new type, you know, a new control system for, uh, uh, for parts of your body that are still okay. You know, your arms and your legs aren't really damaged by a spinal cord injury. So you're really providing a, a, an artificial control system for that. Uh, as we learn more about uh, how to control these multiple muscle systems uh, and to provide, you know, put in sensors, in, you know, other kinds of technology to make the control better, you're going to be able to accomplish a tremendous number of things. Uh, there's a, a lot of advances in implantable devices that will make these um, these systems uh, much more generally available, uh, and I think that you're you're just touching the threshold right now. Uh, there are systems under development for enabling people to stand. Mm -hmm. uh, there are systems for restoring bladder and bowel function in uh, people with spinal cord injuries. This is you know, health-wise, this uh, kind of system is much more important than arm function. Okay, mm -hmm. arm function allows you to to you know to carry out activities yourself. But in the case of bowel and bladder function, these are life and death kind of issues, and so um, they're much more important uh, from that point of view to to somebody with uh, spinal cord injury. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing, and maybe this isn't your field exactly, but um, muscle mass gains and bone mass gains in people who are using electrical stimulation because they're using those muscles now? Yeah, one thing that happens after a spinal cord injury, if you, uh, you get what's called disuse atrophy, uh, so muscles that are still uh, uh, have their connections to the spinal cord, will lose mass, they'll lose their uh, resistance to fatigue, and they'll lose strength. As you uh, activate those muscles, um, they tend to gain strength, and they also tend to increase their fatigue resistance. Uh, this was some fundamental work that was done, you know, for many years ago. Uh, so now one thing that's true, though, is that even with these gains, they don't go back to normal strength levels. Mm -hmm. okay? they're, they're, they're stronger than they were when they're really atrophied, and they're strong enough to provide function, but they're not strong enough to restore normal strength. Well, I was thinking of, yeah. of applications very far yeah. out where, because I know that posture is a problem yes. for somebody who's a quadriplegic. Um, they don't they, they can't feel that they should change posture and, and they get pressure sores and it, it, it would be interesting um, and pressure sores actually by the way led to the death of Christopher, Christopher Reeve, Reeve right. because he got a, an awful infection right um, well so in a sense it could be life and death for you know to have a system that could do something as minor as you know, Right, and you people, know, find a way to to switch pressure yeah. to another side of your and body. And people or are people are in our center are actually working on that. Uh, there, so there's is there's the control of post, seated posture mm -hmm. uh, is one is one uh, study, but there's also uh, studies where uh, stimulating muscles in the buttocks to actually increase their size, their thickness to help protect the tissue to prevent pressure sores. So, so you're it's not, not sitting just right moving on, around, yeah. but also providing 
uh, greater cushioning, if mm -hmm. you will. Wow, that's it's astonishing. Um, it's great stuff. Uh, is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to mention? Well, another one of the, you know, speaking of Christopher Reeve, uh, one of the uh, one of the studies in in Cleveland uh, really was the development of that system that he had implanted for respiration. Uh, he had a diaphragm pacemaker. Right, a diaphragm okay. pacer. Okay. And this was work done by Tom Mortimer and some of his colleagues. Uh, and uh, this was uh, directly a result of uh, the, the work that was done in our center um, over many years. The premise then, just to sum up, is uh, where neurons aren't functioning, you're using electrical stimulation to, to play that role. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. We're restoring... We call it a neuroprosthesis. And a prosthesis you usually think of as something that's substituting, not just helping. It's substituting for something. It's not just assisting uh, something. So we're actually replacing the function of part of the nervous system. Okay? And that's why we call it a neuroprosthesis. Sure. Okay. Since we, will we, since be we able, are in the... Yeah. Will we be able to regenerate neurons? Um, I think, yeah, certainly at, at some point we'll get to that. I think that uh, there's probably an opportunity to uh, take advantage of um, the work that's being done in neuroregeneration, uh, combining that with the functional electrical stimulation. Okay, so, to, so just to take a very simple example, for instance, uh, in a spinal cord injury, some muscles... Um, atrophy completely because they have lost the neuron that runs from the spinal cord to the muscle. Mm -hmm. so it doesn't, the muscle no longer has a connection with the spinal cord and that muscle will atrophy completely and so you can't stimulate it. Okay, so there are some muscles that will, you just you can't apply these techniques to. Okay, but if you could regenerate some neurons that would innervate these muscles just to keep them from completely atrophying, then you could electrically stimulate them and use them to provide the biomechanical function. Okay, so there's a simple case of combining two technologies, a, a regeneration from a tissue engineering approach with, um, with uh, this tech, you know, Im implantable stimulator technology to provide function. So bringing all of the tools you have to bear on a problem is probably right. A good and way although to come out you know, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that you know regeneration will succeed at some point. My my guess is that it's not going to be successful uh, completely in the initial stages. And so a, a marriage of technologies uh, may be uh, very appropriate. Mm -hmm. in, in in very appropriate and very much uh, more likely to be directly beneficial to patients. Okay. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Leah. For more information about Dr. Crago's current work, including information about clinical trials, please see the link at our website, regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Leah? What's our next podcast about? Dr. Anthony Atala recently announced that he had successfully transplanted laboratory-grown urinary bladders into people with spina bifida who often suffer from incontinence and kidney damage as a result of the condition. 
We'll talk with Dr. Atala about his work in podcast number 11, coming to you in mid-June. Dr. Atala was one of the many people advancing the field of regenerative medicine that we met at the 2006 Regenerate meeting last April. We'll be bringing you this series of interviews over the coming months. Now we'd like to invite our listeners to help us learn more about you and your interests in regenerative medicine. So that we may bring you interviews and information that you'd like to hear. We hope you'll take a few minutes to complete our listener survey by visiting the link on our website. All survey respondents can be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute police vest. And if you have ideas for future podcasts or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. We hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And we look forward to you joining us again in a few weeks for the next podcast.